It's great. Man, that's so exciting. See, what is it, 10 of you going to the Czech Republic? Is that right? That is incredible. That's awesome. God is good, right? That's going to be a <clears throat> life-changing thing. Those kind of trips are, are, are you go to uh, minister and help folks along the way, but often the greatest uh, influence is on your own life as you go and serve the Lord in that way. So, And it's great to see, see people gathering around and praying for them and then I guess the question I'm going to ask you right now, really, you've already given me the answer to it, and that is, do you think that, just for a little bit, do you think that prayer changes things? Do you, do you, do you believe that prayer, that you can pray to an almighty God who can absolutely work and change things? I believe that with all my heart. The Bible's absolutely clear on that. I believe that prayer can change things in life, in a situation, in a, in a church, and it, and it may seem like you to be an off-the-wall question to ask a group of believers, but the reality is, if we were to examine our own, our own prayer lives, often the, the, the schedule, the amount of our prayer lives might give a different answer than we just gave, that we don't go to the Lord with the matters of life. We only go, sometimes it seems like, with the big things or the selfish things, and, and we're in the middle of this prayer that Paul's crying out on behalf of the Colossians because he's gotten this report that uh, expresses the great thing that the Lord has done in the past, which we looked at last time. Uh, but there's also threats against this church. And so he's crying out uh, a in a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God for what he's doing. He's asking and, and on their behalf of what he's going to do and continue to do in their lives. And it is all because Paul believes, like all believers should believe, that prayer changes things. I want to show you an example of this. Before we hit Colossians 1, I want you to turn back a few books earlier to Acts chapter 12 and see this. It's a beautiful uh, example of prayer changing things. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Now, the setting here is it's the early church, okay? Uh, Jesus has gone and ascended up to heaven. The, the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost. Uh, the disciples, now apostles, are going forth with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as is the rest of the church. And uh, up until really Acts 12, there's been a great mo momentum going on for the church. A lot of great things are happening. Yeah, there's some hard stuff like the Ananias and Sapphira situation, but there's a lot of great things and the gospel is moving and lives are being changed and thousands are being added to their number constantly. It's an amazing time as the church just explodes in God's perfect plan. As Acts 12 picks up, we find that persecution is ratcheting up. And by the way, if you think when you stand for Christ, everything is always gonna be just peachy king, you need to rethink that. Go to the scriptures and read it. I mean, the, the reality is as you stand for Christ, it will be awesome and incredible and all that kind of stuff. You will have a peace that passes all comprehension. But look, can I tell you this? It doesn't mean the road will always be easy, right? And we sang about that even this morning. Look at chapter 12, verse one. <clears throat> now about that time, Herod, the king, laid hands on some who had belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. That's not laying on hands like, hey, brother, I'm on your side. This is he's grabbing them and putting them in jail, kind of laying on hands, right? That's the phrase then, in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, that means he was beheaded, right? By the way, this is the way that the Mishnah, the Jewish writings, said that you dealt with an apostate with the sword. So he's dying uh, what the, 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 the religious society of the day would call a, a, a heretic's death. And I love the way it puts in there James, the brother of John, because James and John, we see them together all the time, right? The sons of thunder. How hard must that have been on John to lose his, his brother? To, I mean, they wanted to be together so bad that they got mama to go to Jesus, try to get them seats together in heaven. You remember that? I mean... This had to be difficult, not just for John, but for the early church. Verse three, and when they saw, when, when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, and you see there his motive, right? He proceeded to arrest Peter also. Hey, if this is what they like, what a politician, huh? Uh, if this is what they like, let me do it again. So he arrested Peter also. Now, it was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, that detail is important because executions were not permitted at that time. And so he, they had to put him away in jail for a little bit and wait. Verse four, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, 
delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Now, the, word, the squads there are this group of four soldiers. They'd work three-hour shifts, and all the time, there were always four people going to be around Peter here. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer was being made for him fervently by the church to God. I love this, all right? So the first part of the sentence is what? Life's rough, difficult situation. But Peter was being kept in prison. And then there's a comma and this beautiful little phrase. Do you see it there? Two words, but prayer, right? But prayer, that's, that's the turning point really in the situation, but prayer. Uh, you never underestimate, folks, the power of a praying church. At this point, this is all they could do. They knew that's all they could do. They had seen that James was killed, right? It's over, it's done. What are we gonna do? Now it's Peter. What's gonna happen to the church? What do we do? What did they do? They went to their knees in prayer. Isn't that awesome? Uh, this is what we, this is our life, the way we live it. On your best day, this kind of dependence is what should be present in your life and mine, Right? on your best day. And certainly we, we tend to do this, you know, if somebody we love or ourselves, we get a, a, a doctor's report, say, of cancer, or if we have a child that's wandering or, or there's some turbulent situation in our life, but the reality is this is, we cannot breathe, live, continue without the grace of God and him playing uh, all these things out in our life to his glory. And isn't that our desire? So here they are. They're in a difficult situation. And you know what? It's great in difficult situations as well to pray. And that's exactly what's going on here. But prayer was being made, look at the key, look at the word there, fervently. That Greek word is is interesting. It comes originally from a word that means to to stretch or to strain. And it's the picture, you know, like in the Olympics. I know I look like an Olympian, so this will be an easy illustration for you. The, the finish line, right? And you see at the end when they're running, Alice and Felix, somebody like that's running, they, they come to the finish line. What do they do? They stretch out with everything they got, every muscle pushing towards the line. They're overcoming whatever's going on in their life. They push and stretch out to complete the course. That's the kind of word that's just, just used here. It's, it's used of a stretching a muscle to its limit. It, it was used of Jesus when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, how he was uh, straining in prayer. Remember that? Where he was sweating like great drops of blood. Uh, it's the word that's used to describe our fervency as Christians in this area of prayer. This is the way we ought to be. We ought to be like that, that Olympic athlete straining towards the line. We are straining actively striving in prayer. By the way, that word's also used uh, in 1 Peter 4, 8 to talk about that we have that same kind of fervent love for one another. Not just prayer, but love. It's also used in uh, Acts 26, verse 7 to talk about the straining kind of service that we have toward one another as well, and towards others. So here it is. Prayer was being made fervently by the church this is key to God, all right? And on the, very, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, this is verse six, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards were in front of the door. They were watching over the prison. Now, I love this picture, okay? I just gotta be honest with you because Peter, what happened to James? I forget. Now I have a real memory lapse thing going on. What happened to James? Does anybody remember? He got, he got his head separated from his body. Do you think, just for a second, do you think that's fun? That could, that could be like, can you imagine? Now you're the guy sitting there that, you know, in the next day or so, you're gonna be the guy in that, that boat. How well are you gonna sleep? Most of us aren't gonna sleep very well, right? How, but we find Peter, and this is the beautiful part about this verse to me, is that Peter is there and he's just absolutely zonked, conked, and he's doing good. He's just like, oh God, you take care of this matter. I'm gonna hit the sack. You know, guards, you stay up and be on the alert, all right? Chains? No, they're not too uncomfortable, but you know, I can sleep because I got a great God who is working on my behalf. He works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are calling up, called according to his purposes. And guess what? I'm in that category. So in the words of the great theologian, Alfred E. Newman, what me worry? I love that. In our sleeping pill, tranquilizer, saturated society, uh, we could take a lesson from Peter on how to trust God. Remember, it's Peter who wrote in 1 Peter 5, 7, what did he write? Cast all your cares on him, right? Cast all your burdens upon the Lord because he cares for you. That's pretty cool, huh? That's Peter writing that. I think he might know a little bit about that when he writes that. 
So it's on that night. Here he is. He's sleeping, sound asleep between two soldiers. By the way, it was usually one, so they're, they're a little nervous about him, bound with two chains. I'm not sure what the second chain did, but it was a fail-safe. Uh, and guards, two more, were outside the door watching over the prison. Ah, was that enough, you think, to, if God's going to work? Do you think that was enough to stop the game? I don't think so. Look at verse 7. And, and, and behold, <laughs> that's a great word, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in his cell. Ta-da! An angel's here, right? What's Peter doing? Well, apparently that didn't even wake Peter up because look at the rest of the verse. He struck Peter's side and roused him. I mean, this guy comes, you know, light, glory, the God, you know, all this kind of stuff going on. And he's like, still sleeping because he's so resting in the Lord. So, so much that the angel's like, here I am. <clears throat> Boom, you know, get up. He struck his side and roused him and said, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. How cool is that? God, the ultimate locksmith. Verse eight. And the angel said to him, I love the practical aspect of this. Gird yourselves and put on your, put on your sandals. I mean, in other words, we're getting ready to go somewhere. Get up and get dressed. And he did so. Good response, Peter, right? And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Verse nine. And he went out and he continued to follow and he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. Okay, he's kind of like in this haze and he's going, is this really happening or I'm just gonna kind of enjoy the show a little bit. And when they passed by the first and the second guard, they came to an iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them. Here it comes. You ready? Got it working? By itself. Boom. I love the Greek word there. It's, see if you can listen to this Greek word and tell what English word we get from it. Automate. <laughs> Automatic. This is the first, you know, like Ralph's. <laughs> this is the first door like that, right? Boom, it opens up. It opened by itself and they went out and along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. He'd done his job that the Lord had sent him to do. And you get the picture here, okay? There's a ragtag group of hurting, praying people who, because they prayed to a mighty God, end up having greater power than the most powerful man in the land. In other words, a praying group of folks can have a greater impact than the most powerful man in a land or a most powerful nation or all the power of the world combined. Do you think prayer is important? You bet it is. Now, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel. In other words, not a, I'm not dreaming. And he's rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Okay, so this Mary was evidently a pretty wealthy woman, had a big enough house for everybody and had servants, as we'll see in a second, who opened the door. In verse 13, when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Do we have any Rhodas here? You don't hear that name much anymore, do you? And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. Now, you, you see the picture, right? She goes to the gate, who's there? And it's like, it's me, Peter. Open the door, let me. And she's like, Peter, ah! She's like running inside. She cannot wait to tell the little praying group that God is in. Look at this, Peter's at the door. She goes in, Peter's at the door. Guys, Peter's at the door. And they're listening to her and they're just going, shh, 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 shh. we're praying. We're very spiritual. No, no, it's, you, you, no, no, you don't understand. You're, it, it's been answered. Peter's at the door. They said to her, you're out of your mind. God works even when our prayers aren't very faithful, I suppose, right? <laughs> but she kept on insisting this was so. Now, I kind of feel sorry for Peter at this point because she's having to explain it. And he's stuck outside, right? But it's all right. And they just kept saying it's his angel. So they're just basically, they get an answer to the prayer. You ever been like this? You ever had this happen in your life where maybe it wasn't the answer you were looking for or expecting, right? They probably weren't expecting such a literal answer and maybe so fast. And they were basically saying, don't interrupt us with news of the answer to the prayer. Don't, don't interrupt us with the news of, of Peter's release from prison because we're too busy praying for his release. Don't, don't bother us with this word of a miracle from God because we're too busy praying for a miracle from God. <laughs> Peter, meanwhile, verse 16, continues knocking, tick, 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 right? 
open up. Guys. And when they had opened the door, they saw him. And they were correctly amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. That's beautiful, isn't it? See, there is power to prayer. There is a God who is generous. There is a God who is good. He is that Abba Father that we saw in the earlier parts of our study of Colossians. He is that one who cares and is intimately involved. Does this mean he's a genie in a bottle? No way, right? Does this mean he's a celestial Santa Claus who's like we get on his little uh, God lap and we say, what I'd like is this. Can I have it, please? No. But he is a God who's so much better than that. Say a child came to you as a parent and said, Dad, what I'd like really for my birthday this year is, is a bag of crack cocaine. Would you, would you do that for them? Of course not, right? Might they be disappointed for whatever reason that they did not get this uh, gift that they asked for? I suppose, right? But as a father, you do what is best. So you got to remember when we pray, we are praying according to his will. Do you think there might have been people praying when James was in prison? I think so. I, I don't doubt that for a minute. But what happened to James? His head was severed from his body and he went to be with God. Awesome for James. So we, we pray in faith and we, we listen in faith, but we go to him with the desires of our heart. And by the way, as we come to know him more and more, as we follow him in accordance with his word and walk according to the spirit, guess what? Our prayers are continually more and more conformed into what his will is as we pray, right? And even when it's not, Romans 8 tells us that the spirit intercedes with us for us with groanings too deep for words and he redirects our prayers. How cool is that? So if I pray for what's wrong, he's gonna even fix that and, get, and the, the father's gonna do what's best and what's right. That's great. See, Paul understood that prayer can and does change everything. That's why as we open the book of Colossians, as we do many of his epistles, we find him praying, right? He's, he's lifting up this group of believers in Colossae. Last time we saw that he was praying for, for their, uh, regarding their past, right? I'm so thankful, Lord, for what you've done in their lives. I see the, the faith that they have in Jesus Christ. I see the love that they have for all the saints. I see this hope that's evident in their life that's about this, this inheritance that you've given that's been laid up in heaven. And so Paul, he prays that, and then he turns and he prays for uh, their future condition, their present and future condition, condition as well. And notice he's not praying, uh, remember the, the report came from Epaphras about the good, but also came with the bad, that there were false teachers who were coming in and trying to distract the Colossian church. You remember this? And he, he didn't just say, oh Lord, wipe out the false teachers. That wasn't where, predominantly where he was going, right? He's going to deal with that in chapter 2. He wasn't binding Satan or something like that. Oh, Lord, put a hedge of protection around. He was saying this. He was saying, Lord, make them into the kind of believers that when these things come, they will not be distracted. They will not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but they will stand firm in the faith. They will, the faith that saved them will be the faith that they walk in. How cool is that? How right is that? How come we don't pray more like that sometimes, Right? And that's what he's doing here. He, he's, he prays for God to continue to work in their lives and he does it, in, he asks for four very specific things based upon a very specific foundation. Now this morning, we're just gonna talk about the foundation then two weeks from now, we're gonna talk about those four uh, very specific things, all right? But in this passage, we're gonna see that foundation and we're gonna see really what, are, what I would like to call four components of a worthy walk. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? What does that look like? And I want us to look at these things again so that we'll be better prepared to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we'll consider what Paul prayed, right? And understand that that kind of prayer might be good for us to pray for one another so that we might be strengthened so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at our passage, Colossians 1. We're gonna look at verses nine through 14. 
Paul says, for this reason, since the day we, and the we there, if, in case you've forgotten, is Timothy, right? Paul and Timothy. So Paul's writing the letter, Timothy's with him. The day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us, and we sang about this this morning, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, to begin with, and this is what we'll talk about this morning, is we need to understand what we should be praying for. And we should be praying for this proper foundation that, that those that we love those other believers, the folks in your church, your leaders, everybody, that we would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God, okay? Look at verse nine, let's read that one more time. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask, and here it is, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He starts off, he says, for this reason, and there he is, he's referring back to what we talked about last time. For this reason, because of the love that you have, because of the faith that you have, because of the hope that you have, I want to continue this prayer. And and for this reason, since the day that we first heard heard of it, he says in verse 9, that is, since the day Epaphras came with a good report of the people and and told Paul about the threat of the false teachers and and what what they're doing here, the false teachers are coming in, just a little preview for you. They're coming in and they're saying, hey, you know, Christ is enough. You need Christ plus something. Christ plus keeping rules. Christ plus uh, some mystical go-between. Christ plus a, an aesthetic life. And that's really where the world is, right? That's the greatest, uh, and it's, Satan doesn't change his, his tactics at all. They look a little different in the way they play out, but it's always the same. He's always trying to take, for a Christian, Christ plus something. Maybe you need Christ plus psychology. Maybe you need Christ plus self-help. Maybe you need Christ plus your own good works. You know, that kind of stuff. So he's heard of this threat, and he says, since the day that we first heard of it, what God's doing in your life and the threat of these false teachers, look at verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you. Now, Paul's not lying here, right? This is the scriptures. He's telling the truth, okay? He says, I'm not stopping because I care. He hasn't met these people. Remember that? But he cares so much. I imagine that's the way. I'm sure that's the way that this group's going to the Czech Republic. It feels about the people they're praying for over there. They haven't met yet, right? I mean, this is, I'm just praying for them. I can't wait to see what God's going to do. I know when I went to uh, Russia to teach pastors or Grenada or Trinidad or different places that I've gone over the time, Ecuador, all these places, that your heart's just, you don't even know them yet, and you're going, I can't wait to see what God's going to do or coming down here. Okay? I can't wait to see what God's going to do. So since the day we heard of it, I've not ceased to pray for you. And that's Paul's initial response to the crisis at hand, Prayer. I mean, think about this. What's your first response when you face a crisis? You know, you find out that you're going to lose your job. You find out that your spouse is being unfaithful. You find out when your children is wandering. What's your response? Is it panic? Fear? Talking to a bunch of people? Going to your boss? Trying to work it out? Making, see if you can straighten things out? What is it? The first response should be Prayer. We don't need to take matters into our own hands. There will be things that God has for us to do in whatever process that lies, uh, that lies ahead for us. But the first response is, hey, I know I can't handle any of this on my own. I need mighty God working on my behalf. And so all I can do right now is drop to my knees and say, God, please, work in my life. Work in this situation. My whole life is being turned upside down. But Lord, I know that you're in it. I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're good. I know that you're able. So there's really no reason for me to fear here, is there? And I'll put my trust in you. And Lord, may I give you glory in whatever the outcome and how it looks and all that kind of stuff, right? Paul's response was to take it to God, the one who could truly do something about it. 
I love a verse that's found in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, this is the context here is when Saul was made king. You remember that? The, the Israel wanted a king. Why'd they want a king? Do you recall? Somebody tell me. It's okay. You can speak up. Anybody? Bueller? Huh? We want a king because everybody else has a king, mommy, right? So God says, you want a king? Ah, give you a king. Who'd they give him? Saul. Who was their king before that, by the way? God. Hmm, let me think about that for a minute. Is it good to trade Almighty God as your king for Saul? They seem to think so at the time. Eh, wrong answer, right? We do that in our own lives. If we're not careful, it may not be with a king, with a throne and a crown and all that kind of stuff, but it's our own situation where we take control of it or we value things more than we value our God as idols in our life. But this verse in that context, as, as, as Saul's being uh, uh, crowned king, Samuel talks to the people and he warns the people about some things and reminds them they wanted this guy and he tells, calls them to repentance and then in verse 23 of 1 Samuel 12, he says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I mean, think about that for a second. Some evangelicals would be awful happy to go, hey, they made their bed, they lie in it. Let them get the just rewards, right? It's good, they'll learn their lesson. Maybe get a little glee out of them learning the lesson. The heart of God's man is far be it from me. And who, sin against who? Against them? Against who? The Lord. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That's the attitude that you and I should have. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, for one another, for your leaders, right? Leaders for your people. Are you praying for one another like that? Please do, don't sin against the Lord. Leaders, are you praying for your people like that? Please do, don't sin against the Lord. People, are you praying for your leaders? We're instructed in the New Testament for that too, right? Please do, don't sin against the Lord. Even bad leaders. Even secular, pray for the king, right? So Paul prays. Now what did he go to God and ask? Look back at verse nine. He prayed to ask, see it, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. That word there I'm reading from the New American Standard, filled, it's a key word in the book. The Greek word here is plerao. It literally has the idea of being filled full. I like to think of it as like you have a, a, a cup and you're pouring water into it. And you know, you can always get a little more in it until then it's, you fill it, fill it, fill it, and it's like, it's that far from the top? No, that's enough, honey. No, no, fill it full. Fill it all the way to the top. Well, it's right at the top. That's enough, honey. No, f that's more. Fill it. You know when you get that surface tension that holds it <laughs> in there and kind of curves down towards the edge if you looked at it closely? That's not even full enough, I don't think, for what's being described here. A little bit more, and it's just overflowing, right? My cup runneth over kind of full. Filled, full. It's a key word in this book. 46 times in Colossians, you're going to find some word, some key word that's, that's giving this idea of sufficiency and, and completeness and fullness. Words like all and every and filling up and complete and things like that. He says, he's asking if they may be filled. Filled with what? That's an important question. Filled with the knowledge of his will. By the way, this is point one I'm working on right now, right? You see that a worthy walk is is rooted in knowledge. Okay, that's a blank if you need that. That's the only one you're gonna get today so you can start paying attention again. Filled full with what? Filled full with the knowledge of his will. The word for knowledge there is epigenosis. It's a great word. And it's the idea of clear knowledge, being full of clear knowledge. I love that. In our day and age where most people are more concerned with actions rather than thought, practice rather than precept, and the question tends to be, don't give me doctrine, or the, 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 what people are seeking is, don't give me doctrine, just give me some practical guidelines, maybe how-to sermons, things like that. And by the way, actions are important. Precept is important, right? Truth and what flows out of truth are equally important. They're very important. But the, the cart does not need to be before the horse. And what we need to understand is there is genuine doctrine out of which genuine Christian conduct flows. And that's why he prays 
before he starts talking about the activities and things like that, he says that they may be filled with the knowledge of his, that's God's, will. We need both. We need the indicatives and we need the imperatives. That's why the Bible has both. So he starts here. By the way, action without doctrine is, is an evil thing. You understand that, right? Even your best action without truth is a wicked, wicked thing. It's often self-powered. It's ill-directed. Um, there's people doing a lot of goofy things in the name of God right now. Have you noticed this? I mean, you got people who are barking in church to the, to the glory of God. That's wrong, okay? I'm sorry. There, we're, remember the holy laughter thing, what, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? <laughs> we're laughing to the Lord. What else is going on? Nothing. No, that's not real. There was even one, forgive me for this, cover your kids' ears. Um, They were vomiting in the aisles of the church to the glory of God. How would you like to be in that church and be the janitor, huh? That's sick, isn't it? See, because Satan's a counterfeiter. He likes to masquerade as an angel of light, so he likes to give God words, right? I remember when they did the, uh, what was that thing they had, the harmonic conversions. You remember that a few years back? And 144,000 people had to go up on some hill here in California because it was going to bring around world peace. Why do you think they chose 144,000? That's a number you find in the Bible quite often, right? So it sounds awful religious, doesn't it? Didn't work. Spoiler. Doctrine, action without doctrine is hypocrisy. And that's a sin that, that Jesus, when he was at his harshest, was against the hypocrites, right? By the way, doctrine without action... <laughs> That's, that, actually, that's hypocrisy. Doctrine without action. Action without uh, doctrine is, is legalism. Doctrine without action, that's, that's the idea that I'm talking a good game, but it doesn't affect my life in any way. I can kind of answer all your questions in the theological roundtable, but it's really not changing anything. That's a problem. If your doctrine is such you don't have the right doctrine, at least the doctrine hasn't made it the 18 inches from your head to your heart. There must be action. There must be doctrine. Must have both without the other The the other's deformed. And that's why Paul does what he does. And that's a bit of a microcosm of Colossians because Paul begins his discussion by talking about what their life should be life in these verses we're looking at. And he talks about the source where that conduct flows from, Jesus Christ, in the following verses, verse 15 and following. And then after he talks a little bit about the false teacher, he drives home the point about what happens in your life in, in verses, or in chapters three and four. You see? So he has doctrine, right? But he doesn't end Colossians at the end of chapter 2. And he doesn't start Colossians at the beginning of chapter 3. It's both, right? Action, doctrine, and action. And he, and he, he lays the foundation, then he calls them to be what God drives, wants them to be. And he drives on the practical results of that truth. Now, look back at verse 9. Now, notice the kind of knowledge he prays for them to have. And it's not it's particular knowledge here, right? Knowledge of what? The will of God. Now, this is a big topic, and everybody struggles with this. God's will has two parts, okay, biblically speaking. There's the general will of God. And that's the, the will of God that's clearly given in the Bible, right? Uh, morality, do not kill, do not uh, commit adultery, do not lie, that kind of stuff. There, there's uh, doctrine, there's true and falses that are in the Bible, right? And those are the, the moral law, the moral will of God, his will for salvation, his will for your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, God for you, right? Your sanctification. That's the general will of God, okay? Those are the things that are actually, uh, easy is the wrong word, but are simple to understand and move forward on. Not necessarily easy to move forward on, but simple, okay? Then there's this idea of the specific will of God, and that's more the question of what do I do in this particular situation I find myself into? Okay, I've got two job offers. Which one do I take? Uh, you know, should I marry this girl for the rest of my life or this guy for the rest of your life, right? Things like that. When you come to your specific situations, God's word does not say, bing, this is the one. Kimberly Sue Eden is going to be your wife, David M. Cummings. Nah. I had a guy the other day say, I wish God would write things on the wall for me. I said, that doesn't work out good. Go to Daniel. It's a different animal. No, no, he's giving you his heart. Now, within those guidelines that he's given to you, it's not like he's some mean uncles that hiding everything from you, right? He's giving you his, his code. Now, within those guardrails, so to speak, right, 
you have freedom to move. So, propose to her. Take that job. If, it, if there's nothing contradicting, right? You have freedom for God. God gives you those joyous things to make a choice. It's not like, oh, I fell now. I ma- married absolutely the wrong woman. You may have done that. Right? You're there. Now, God has a series of codes of how to work through that, right? But people, what really happens, people saying, until I figure out God's will, I can't do anything. I don't know what to do. Until I'm married, I don't know what to do. Because God hasn't given me his specific will on that. Now that, my friends, is outside his general will. Because he has activity and things that he wants to be using you for as long as there's breath coming out of your lungs. Paul is praying. He says, oh, Lord, I pray that you would just fill so full to overflowing these Colossian believers with a true practical knowledge of your will and what that looks like in their life. And he wants this for the believers because he knows this will help them to counteract any of these heresies that are coming against them. He further details that knowledge. Look at verse 9. Once we'll be filled full with the knowledge of the will of God, check out the prepositional phrase at the end, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The emphasis there in the text is on spiritual, okay? And what he's doing, he's showing his hand a little bit. He's, he's, he's uh, uh, contrasting that to the vain philosophies of worldly teachers, right? And he'll get to that in chapter two, verse eight. He'll say, you need to avoid these kind of traditions and worldly philosophies of men. They're not valuable. You need to have spiritual wisdom, not worldly wisdom. You need to have spiritual understanding. And the emphasis there of spiritual should tell us something, and that is that (coughs) spiritual wisdom and understanding come through the work of the Holy Spirit, all right? So you don't have the Holy Spirit unless what? You are, go ahead. Anytime now, we can be here till noon. Now what? Unless you are, you, when do you get the Holy Spirit? Anyone? When you're saved, it wasn't as hard as you thought. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not a mean person. Why do y'all think that about me? What did I do to you? Right? No, no. We get every believer, every believer has the Holy Spirit, Right? He's the one who instigated the whole process. He's the one that illuminates the gospel so that we understand understand it, convicts us of our sin. Uh, The Father then draws us to himself. The Spirit does a work in us that saves us and he seals us as his own so that we'll always be that way, all right? But it doesn't stop there, just in the uh, justification and preceding parts of salvation. It continues on. The work of the Holy Spirit continues on. And he, he is the one who, when we come to the Word of God and we're studying the Word of God and we're seeking to apply it to all the varied life situations that we face, he's the one that opens our eyes and helps us to understand it when we study it correctly, right? In its context. And he's the one who helps us to apply that. He gives us spiritual, check it out, gifts. Love, joy, peace, patience, kind, you know all that, right? So he says, I want them to have all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He emphasizes this because we need the work of the Spirit here. And the knowledge of the will of God is realized through the Word of God read in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Thus, Paul sent this letter. So first, Paul prays that the believers will be filled full with clear wisdom, a clear, full knowledge of the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So often all we pray for is our physical health, our well-being, our social relationships. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with praying for those things. Okay, we should. But sometimes our prayers are simply organ recitals, right? Just reciting a list of medical needs and then leaving it there. Oh, Lord, we lift up Aunt Emma's leg and Brother Rufus's esophagus, you know, that kind of thing. Those, it's okay to pray for those things, but I tell you what, if Brother Rufus's esophagus gets fixed, the man's gonna die anyway if the Lord tarries of something else. Go ahead and pray for that. And by his grace, if it's his will, his esophagus gets healed, right? Peter's life is spared, or James is not. 
But even, and there's nothing wrong with praying for those things, but even more than that, let's round our prayer life out more. We should also, like Paul's prayer here, be praying for each other's understanding of God's will for themselves in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Prayers which contain, like Paul's does here, eternal matters, salvation, the work of the gospel through missionaries, right? Through our church family, as you guys go out from this place into various workplaces and schools and all that kind of stuff, there is an immense amount of gospel work that can be going on. I would submit to you there's as much work to do here as there is in Ecuador or any of the other places I've been or Czechoslovakia or those places. There are those kind of things to do. And so we're excited about that, but hey, I'm excited too because you guys are going out, I'm going out, and there's gonna be something this week for us too while we're praying for them. Dig it? There is so much. The church is under attack, right? The, the worldview of our generation is way out of whack and it's not getting better. Can we pray that God's word would go forth? And then if there, is re, if there is resistance to that, that we would be able to stand firm. I saw this week Exodus International. You remember them? They said, oh, we're just kidding. <laughs> we don't believe God can change anybody from being gay, that kind of stuff. Hey, listen, you know, we have sympathy for a homosexual person the same way we do for somebody who's struggling with gossip. You know what I'm saying? I know it's like, really, a homosexual and somebody who's doing gossip? You put those on the same page? Yes, I do. They're sins that will send you to hell, either one of them. You tracking with me so far? I also believe that God can change that gossiper's tongue. Although I haven't seen it very often. No, I'm kidding. Uh, he can do it. And he can change that person who's stuck in any kind of lustful sin, such as homosexuality. He can change them. Our God I believe that because our God's powerful, all right? And because he said he can. That's enough. He can't lie. But, you know, they're even, people are bowing. People who used to stand are bowing. Let us be the ones, if it's all that's left, let uh, this church be the one that stands up and says, we will stand for the word of God until such time that he takes us home. Eternal matters. We need to be praying. We need strength for those kind of things. It's notice here, and notice here that his purpose wasn't just for knowledge only, but it was the conduct that would flow out of that knowledge. He says, wisdom, right? That's applied knowledge, right? Yui's daughter's name's Sophia, right? That's wisdom, right? And it's a particular word. There's four words for knowledge or wisdom. And this is one that's like applied knowledge. It's, it's when it's really working. It's, it's when you get it and, you, and it flows out from there. And that's what flows out of this foundation of doctrine, the Christ-like life. When he prays, let him know your will in all spiritual wisdom, that is applicational knowledge and understanding how to deal with situations. And these guys are gonna be able to be okay. They'll be able to stand firm. So the purpose of this knowledge is not just for the sake of answering Bible, Bible trivia questions, Right? but so that we may walk in a manner worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you gotta notice those words there in our text, so that. You gotta have a so that when you come to the Bible. Too often we stop short of so that. And the so that here is that we walk in a manner that is worthy, that is pleasing to God. That's a wonderful goal for each of us, isn't it? I mean, what's your goal? If I were to say, what's your five-year goal? What's your 10-year goal? We all ask questions like that, especially in the business world, right? What's your goals? You might be telling me, well, I hope that I'll be able to get out of debt. Or I hope that I'll be able to buy a home. Or, you know, I'd like to, this one's for the guys, I'd like to get married. Or the girls. And those are, those are sure, those are short-term goals and everything. But let me go a little further than that and say, what are your real goals? What should be your big goals under which those, the umbrella under which those things uh, live? I remember when I went when I left seminary, when I graduated and moved to Kansas to pastor a church there, I was talking to one of my business associates where I worked at uh, during uh, seminary, and he said, well, he, he was not a believer, and he just couldn't get it. Why would you go all the way to Kansas, of all places? And why would you do that? What are your goals? What are, how many people are there? What's the numbers, you know? Is there a graph that's going to go up somewhere in here? He needed a bar chart or something, I guess. And what I did was I gave him Colossians 1. 
And so here's my goal. I, I want to see people whose lives are, are changed. I want to see them presented complete, right? I want to see God work in individuals' lives. The world lives with a different set of goals. Retirement balances, positions at work, lower handicap in golf. And if we could back off enough, and I hope we get to this in, in our eternal mindset that the book of Colossians talks about. And I hope you're reading it. Are you reading it? Please tell me you're reading it. Go ahead. Okay, you don't have to tell me. I don't want you to lie in church. All right. The whole point of Colossians is getting back to that perspective that my goals are, are predicated on this idea of my vertical relationship. And that's how I look at those horizontal things. You see, here's the reality. How long are you going to live, right? I mean, we've got some little ones in here and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you're gonna li- they're going to live a lot longer. They'll be around when I'm dead and gone, you know, if, if the Lord tarries, right? Um, how long are you going to live? 70, 80 years? Let me bump that up. My mom's here. 100 years? Let's say that I saw 116. That was the oldest guy. I think I saw an article on that the other day. 116 years old. Picture that now. I'm a math guy, all right? Picture a line. Do you remember lines, rays, lines? Remember this from math class? What's a ray? It starts at a point, right? And has a little error on the end, meaning it continues indefinitely, right? When we're talking about our eternal, we, talk, we start at a point, right? We're not eternal. That's God with an arrow on both ends, a line. So on this ray here where the point is in that corner over there underneath the exit sign, there is an arrow. There is a line that is going this way. Tell me, how long is eternity? Where do I stop the line? Do I stop it at the American flag? Do I stop it at the screen here? Do I stop it at the door? Where does it stop? Somebody tell me. All the way, right? You can't stop it because that's the definition of eternity, right? Continues on and on and on. It wraps around the world, keeps going all the way, never stops, right? Okay, now, you got the line in your head? Of course you don't because it's infinity. Don't lie to me. You said what you said you did. All right, now put, go up there with a marker and mark out your life on there. Can you do that? Now think about this. It's ever growing. So that means where we're at, our time is ever what? Condensing. Are you following me? Am I getting too, okay. I can't give you a marker because that dot, if you put it there, would be too big, right? I can't give you a ballpoint pen because that dot would be too big. I can't give you the sharpest pencil ever sharpened because that dot would be too big because your 116 years, if you last that long, would not even show up on a line like that. Now, let me ask you an applicational question. By the way, the dot's on the corner over there if you're trying to place it still. That's where you started. Here's your applicational question. Why is it that all my goals, all my desires are on that little bit of dot when I should be placing all of my heart's goals and desires upon eternal matters. You tracking with me? Why is it that that's, I'm not saying avoid any of those things that come up, but I'm saying you view those things in light with the vertical. We serve an eternal God with eternal purposes who is working in an eternal manner and he wants to use us finite beings in this life to accomplish his will. That's cool, that's cool to be an ambassador of Christ. The goal, verse 10, here it is. This is eternal perspective. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Guys, that should be our goal, to walk worthy. That should be our goal, to please him in all respects. The word walk there is parapeteo. It, it is a word that, pateo means to walk. Para is like, you know, perimeter, walk around. It's, it's, it's a word for life, to walk around. It's the Old Testament uh, equivalent for living life. So that we may live life in a manner that's pleasing to him. Not, not worthy or pleasing in the sense of earning salvation, right? But suitable and representative of the one that you represent. You see, as you live that kind of life, in closing here, as you live that kind of life, you will live a life before a watching world that is different dramatically at times different. You will be distinctive. You will stand out. You will be in contrast. And we need not lose fact of that as we live our life in this world here in Southern California, we may be the only illustration of Jesus Christ that people see at first, right? We may be the only, only ones that, 
that they can see any glimpse of the gospel. They may have no family, nobody they know that knows anything about the church gospel or any of that kind of stuff. And you may be the only one who's crossing their path in uh, third year chemistry or, or in that cubicle next to you at IBM or someplace, right? Do the people of Southern California see Christ when you interact with them? That's really how you can see if this is playing out well, right? At your job, at your school, in your neighborhood. Do, do your words have the, the ring of Christ to them? Or are they just simply bitter and complaining words? Do you treat others in the community with dignity and with love and value as God valued them to send his only son? Do you do all your business dealings above board, legally, right, just, fair, represent him well? You know, as a parent, you know, my, every parent's heart desires that your kid would love and glorify. Every parent here, I'm sure the heart desire is that, that your children would follow Christ, right? And love him and serve him and have his values. But every parent on the planet has a desire pretty much that their kids would at least respect them and carry their values or honor them in some way, right? You see, as we have a father and we are his reflection here, in this world, we need to reflect his values. We need to show Christ to the world around us. And that begins with walking in a manner worthy of our Lord and such that we would be pleasing to him, that we are filled with a full knowledge of the will of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that a bunch of stuff we'll look at in two weeks will take place. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together today. And Lord, uh, your word is so rich and so deep, and sometimes I feel like we just scratch the surface of it, Lord. But Father, we thank you that the truths that you give us are truths that you give us your spirit to apply. So Father, help us to, to be filled full. Help each one here to be filled full with knowledge of you and your wisdom and your will, that we'd have all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this is by your grace. We give you the glory. It's in his name we pray, amen.